This is episode 19 of the Just Get Started podcast, and my guest today is the founder of J. Barrows Sales Training, John Barrows. Let's get it started. Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey, where we talk with people from all across the globe, from all walks of life, uh, but all really you know, have that fire in their belly that they want to live life on their own terms and, and really don't succumb to the society norms, if you will. Um, and that's not always just starting a business. I know that's where everyone's mind goes is, oh, that means you know they got to go start their own business, whatever. That's great, or if they want some side hustle, awesome. But it could just be getting in the best shape of their life because they've been unfit for the last 15 years and the pounds have added up and their back's a little creaky, so they want to go and change that. Or maybe it's just a new hobby they want to try out. They're sick of watching TV for 10 hours a week and say, you know what, I want to do something else that makes me fulfilled and energized in life. So whatever that may be for you, the whole point is that you got to start out on that journey. So what you're going to get out of all these different interviews that we have um, from, again, all different types of people, all different ages, people that have done various things in their life, is just to see how they've done it, um, different things that they went through, and start putting the patterns and trends together to see how you can take a few of the tips and tricks, um, some of their insight, uh, maybe it's a, a mentality that they have, and you can kind of map that and see if it can help you out in your own particular journey. And, you know, one of those things I want to talk about, actually, those trends is the nature versus nurture argument. I think it's a good place to start today. And we're going to talk about a variety of different topics over the you know the next several podcasts. But the nurture piece is fascinating to me. I'm very bullish on it. Um, I don't think it gets talked about nearly enough. We generally bucket people if they're successful or have a great skill. It's they were born with it. You know, it's God given is a lot of the argument. And I just think that's, you know, that's kind of a cop out for a lot of folks because the reality is if you put time or you invested time into certain things, you could have been a lot better, had a lot different skills. But even not not even going that far, we all have things that we're great at that probably in, in childhood we learned or we were exposed to and that has helped us along in life. We may not think about it all the time. It may not come across us, but it's just more innate because of all that stuff we were exposed to as a kid. As an example, I was talking with uh, Carolyn Lemke in episode 14. Uh, she's the owner of Noble Friend Shop. And you know she has a business where she draws people's pets and illustrates them and then puts that on you know t-shirts or pillows or towels or whatever you want. But she talks about how her siblings were exposed to being creative when they were younger. Their mom made them create everything. Um, you know, they were tinkering around with stuff, always drawing, always building stuff, always trying different things. So who knows if she didn't have that upbringing, if that wouldn't have led her into graphic design and, and realizing that she was good at drawing, ultimately leading to her, you know, going to college for that and majoring in it and then having this business down the road. So it's a fascinating thing that I'm really thinking about a lot more nowadays. I'm reading a book that's kind of in line with this called The Creative Curve. Uh, by Alan Gannett, and it's a fascinating book. I absolutely recommend you guys uh, check it out. And it's just about how you know, are we born with stuff, or are genius, quote unquote, you know, these people that consider that they're the top of their trade or that they're they're best at whatever? 
was that something that was nurtured along um, with practice and, and what have you throughout their childhood and adolescence. So anyways, some fascinating stuff I'm thinking about. Um, I'd love for you guys to share any stories that you have, uh, maybe from your childhood that you're like, God, you know, Brian, I'm, it's actually interesting that nowadays, you know, I see that, you know, trait or that skill or whatever it might be come through, um, you know, in my adult life. So Anyways, fascinating stuff. We'll talk more about this and other topics, you know, some principles that are really, you know, set in stone that maybe can help you guys along um, and think about things a little bit differently, um, you know, as you go along on your own journeys. But for now, let's transition into my interview today with John Barros. Uh, John is the founder of J. Barros Sales Training. Uh, their website is jbarros.com. And they work with a myriad of organizations from Dropbox and LinkedIn and Salesforce that you may recognize to a variety of others that maybe you've never heard of. But um, a great community on Facebook as well. Make It Happen B2B Sales with John Barros is the uh, Facebook group name. Certainly recommend you check that out. A lot of idea sharing, questions being fielded back and forth. So something you might enjoy as well. Uh, But we get into a variety of topics today from his upbringing, how he got into sales, you know, going from a startup to you know, getting acquired by Staples. Um, we talk a lot about advice for sales professionals. So we run the gamut on a variety of topics, and I think you guys will really enjoy the dialogue throughout. So without further ado, let's jump into my interview today with John Barros. Let's get it started. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this. No, it's always exciting. Uh, just, you know, I I'm in the sales profession, so it's always uh, nice to chat with folks that have been successful and, and that are all ultimately helping and coaching other folks, uh, getting better at that. So I'm curious to hear your insight on some things. And, you know, where I wanted to start today, um, and I think it's always nice, is to kind of take a step back because, you know, one of the things that's always funny about sales is no one ever like, you're not like a 10-year-old running around like, I can't wait to be a sales <laughs> professional. That doesn't happen. So right. I'm always curious, especially someone like yourself that's coaching a lot. How did you ultimately get into sales in the past? Was that was it something in high school or college that tipped you off? Was it maybe a first job you have? I'm I'm curious how you got started with that, and that'll lead us in a few different uh, directions. Yeah, no, I mean, I I kind of fell in it, into it like everybody else. I mean, to your point, I, nobody ever grows up saying I want to be in sales, which is actually why you know it's funny. People are everybody always asks me, you know, when am I going to write my book and all that stuff, and I, you know, I've always been like, ah, you know, what am I going to write that somebody hasn't already written? But I'm going to be in uh, I'm and. I'm going to write a book, but it's going to be a children's book. And the title is I want to be in sales when I grow up. So it's funny you bring that up. Uh, so I'm in the process of writing that right now. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think from an early age, I I always my mom said I always was very kind of uh, money driven in the, in the sense that I always wanted to figure out how to make money so I could support, you know, I could buy the things I wanted to buy and all that other stuff. And so. I think for whatever reason, I was I was driven early on by what I thought was money, but, you know, ultimately was success. And, um, you know, I went to college at university. I grew up here in Boston. Um, I went to college at Maryland mainly because they gave me a scholarship and they didn't force me to declare my major uh, until my junior year, which, you know, to me, I always found it ridiculous that you're asking an 18 year old kid to, to tell you what they want to be, you know, for the rest of their life at 18. I just I find that insulting and ridiculous. But, you know, uh, Maryland two years. So I went all the way. I started as an art major. Um, 
<laughs> realized I wasn't going to make any money and I wasn't good enough for that. Then I went into math because my dad's an engineer and got kicked, you know, my ass kicked by calculus. Um, got into biology because I figured science is cool too, you know, disaster there. So ultimately ended up with marketing and business. First of all, because it was a hell of a lot easier than those other majors. But um, second of all, because I felt like marketing really kind of combined my skills uh, and stuff that I, I, I like working with people. There was an artistic component to marketing and there was a money component to making making money. But um, sales was not something that was on my mind until I got the offer. Um, University of Maryland actually, uh, Black & Decker hire, recruits heavily out of Maryland because they're right there in Towson. And so they recruited me for a job on the DeWalt Power Tools team, which was really, it was under sales, but it was actually more uh, event marketing. So I drove around in a Dodge Ram pickup truck, giving away free tools, which was cool. But then after, I don't know, six months doing that, I got promoted to sell to Home Depot. And it was, that was really kind of my real entree into sales because it was, you know, Home Depot had to buy DeWalt tools, but it was my job to take their $10,000 order and turn it into a $50,000 or $100,000 order. Uh, and then I got into real sales with Xerox. So um, a friend of mine was working at Xerox and I wanted to make the move. So that's where I really got my true sales education. Uh, and then I caught a startup bug with my buddy who started a company doing outsourced IT services. And um, I didn't like the corporate world. It really didn't fit for me spending two years doing this and two years doing that, not really having a true impact on the business. So I jumped into startups, ran that company. I uh, ended up being the fastest growing company here in Massachusetts for a few years in a row, row and then sold it off to Staples. And then um, I was looking for a job and, and the training company, Basho, that I had taken because I had I was 25 when I started the company with my buddy and I didn't know what I was doing. So I took every training. I took Sandler, Miller, Hyman, Tesp and all of it. And, and I came across this one company, Basho. And it was really um, I liked it because it was very direct. It was very tactical. Um, and so I used it. And then uh, after selling off to Staples, they offered me the position to come on board and uh, run training, not because I wanted to be a trainer, um, which is actually, I didn't want to be a trainer. Most trainers I had come across were either failed sales professionals or professional presenters. So I didn't want to be lumped into that. But um, they said, don't worry, you have to use these techniques to sell so you can train so you can get paid. And so the whole practice, which you preach thing I liked. And so I joined them, uh, took on some bigger accounts, uh, brought on some bigger ones. And then to make a very long story short, they screwed it all up and I took it over. So I uh, went off on my own with Jay Barrows and been doing this now for been training for about 10 years now, um, but been off on my own for about five. And uh, now I work with Salesforce, LinkedIn, Box, Dropbox, you know, a lot of the Google, a lot of the fast run SaaS companies to teach their teams techniques and tips and ideas just to kind of do sales the right way, in my opinion, uh, you know, ethical, above board for the right reasons, all that stuff. Interesting. And, and I, I want to get back into that, like, you know, obviously going in out on your own and stuff in just a second. But you mentioned something there. And, and I, if I fail to ask mm -hmm. this, I'm going to I'm going to kick myself later is. Why was art the major? Why did you decide to do that? That was in, that's always that's important uh, to me. Yeah, my mom's an artist. Uh, she she has two masters degree in art education. Um, I've always loved art since I was a kid. Uh, it was my favorite class all the way through junior high and high school. I was the kid that when the uh, school needed you know something painted on a banner or a wall or something like that, I was the guy they that, that did it. So I don't know. I just felt like. Uh, why not? Right. Uh, but then it was funny because when I got into college and I, you know, I was like, all right, this is going to be my major. 
I got into a room um, with a bunch of other kids, you know, putting art as their major, and I realized, whoa, okay, <laughs> you know, this is college now. This is this is you know, University of Maryland's thirty five thousand students, so my town was twelve thousand people. Uh, so I was uh, smacked in the face of, of a level of talent that I had never come across before, and realized, ooh. I'm not at that level already as a freshman, so this is going to be a tough career if I decide to stay in this. Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, and this is, I'm always a big believer in this, you know, the, kind of the argument that nature versus nurture and, and that nurture part, especially where your upbringing is, how that maybe helps you now in your career that maybe you don't think about kind of thing. Right. So I think having that art background, that's kind of really unique. Um, and, and how did that help into, from a, I guess, growing up standpoint? Because you know, especially a lot of the stuff I uh, I see on you, or I've, I've listened to some podcasts and stuff. Is there's a lot of confidence around you uh, that uh, the self confidence that you have does that come from childhood? Were you were you you know given that self esteem as a kid? When do you think you pick that up over the years? Yeah, it's funny because you know I follow a lot of Gary Vaynerchuk, and you know he says his mom just instilled confidence, like everything he did was the greatest, and all that other stuff, and that's how he's as confident as he is. You know that wasn't really the case. I mean, my mom and parents always were over, like you know they've been married for fifty years now. Like I grew up in a in a great environment, and they were super supportive. But it's not like they were over supportive, right? It's not like, and I was I don't know I was above average, maybe slightly above average average in school as far as being an athlete and being a, you know, and I never really was the greatest, you know, athlete in school or the best, you know, the smartest kid. Um, I always got along with a lot of people. Uh, you know, I was, I was the kid who kind of got along with the dorks and the nerds all the way up through the athletes and, and the jocks. And so I don't know, I, I think it really just moved into real confidence when I just realized I was good at what I did. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things that when I got fired, so when my little company got $10 million company got bought by Staples, um, you know, I, I ultimately I got fired. Right. And I mean, they offered me another position, um, but uh, they, they fired me and I was a little bit of a crisis to say, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, am I, I was selling outsourced IT services. So, you know, computer support. And I've been doing that for seven years. And I was like, am I, is that what I am? Is, am I an IT sales guy? I'm like, ugh, right. Like I didn't even like computers, you know? Um, and so I was nervous that I had to go now. This was the thing that I had to do. But my wife was actually the one who helped me figure this out. And it leads to ultimate confidence here was, you know, we look back at every single job I had had in my career and, we, and you know, I was the top rep at each company. Right. So, um, well, each region. So DeWalt, I was the best DeWalt sales rep in the region. Um, I Xerox, I was the best Xerox there. Thrive, you know, we were fastest growing company in Massachusetts. So we look back at all those jobs and she said, you know, why were you successful at each one of those positions? And we kind of went through it and it, and it ultimately came down to that. I just, I believed in, in each one of those products. I genuinely believed in them. And so to me, you know, somebody had said this early in my career that sales was the transfer of enthusiasm. And I, and I really love that. And I believe that. 
that, you know, if you believe in what you sell, which is what I think is the most important thing about sales, you, you genuinely have to believe that your product is is for the right client makes a difference. And if you don't, I please get out of sales. I'm, I'm telling everybody listen to this podcast right now. If you're the jackass out there that's just selling for a commission check and you literally don't give a shit about what you're selling and you're just hawking it, then please do us all a favor and get out of this profession because you're the ones who give us a bad name. But if you believe in what you sell, then it it it's not easy. Sales is the hardest job out there, but it's a lot easier. And so DeWalt Power Tools, like I was, I loved selling DeWalt Power Tools because DeWalt Power Tools are badass, right? Um, so it wasn't hard for me to have that conversation and transfer that enthusiasm to people. Same thing with uh, um, Xerox. Like not that I loved copiers, but I genuinely believed that Xerox copiers were the best in the industry at the time. And then Thrive, my company. You know, that was, it's not that like I cared about computers, but I genuinely believed that our people, like the engineers and the employees, were going to over service our clients and help them out. And now with what I do, I mean, the reason I took, the, the reason I joined Basho was because it was the first training that I took that I genuinely felt like, oh, I like this. You know, it wasn't a bunch of fluff. It wasn't a bunch of, you know, theory or any of that crap. And it worked for me. Right. So when I got the opportunity to sell it, I was like, wait a minute. I, can, you know, it, it kind of dawned on me where I was like, shit, I could, I could sell sales to sales reps and I'm a sales, I'm like, whoa, it's kind of like selling crack to crackheads and I'm a crackhead. So it's like, I'm in, right? And so I think that's really where the confidence came from is that when you, when you genuinely believe in what you do uh, and you have passion for what you do, I think that just, you know, transfers to, it, it sometimes manifests itself in confidence from the outside perspective, but I think it's just a genuine passion and belief for what you do. At least for me. And then how did, so the coaching, so with Basho and, and, and you kind of went in the direction of starting, you know, getting out on your own and saying, hey, you know, I'm going mm -hmm. to coach different um, organizations. That must have been, a, was that an easy transition or was that like something like, hey, I could do, you know, I've been successful. I know the, the keys to help out. Was that an easy transition for you or was it, was it did you have a kind of mold that over for a while? No, it was, it was easy from, it was easy because I was fortunate. Um, so I've always said, you know, I don't have, you know, I wasn't, I'm not the smartest kid out there. You know what I mean? Like I did well in school, but I'm not like the brainiac that can read a book and immediately take a test, you know, that type of stuff like that. Um, that's not mine. Um, what I've been blessed with, I think if there is one thing, is just an opportunistic lens in, in the sense that I can look at, I usually can look at a situation and with a couple of data points, make a call on it and say, yeah, we should do this or no, we shouldn't. And, and I don't overanalyze it. I don't, you know, sit there and belabor the decision. I just kind of make it and, and move on. And most of the times it works out for me. And so what happened with this was, I felt like because my mom, so you said nature, nurture, right? Um, when I was a kid, I was a quote unquote happy surprise. So I was, I was born nine years after my sister. Um, my parents call me happy surprise. And my mom had spent, uh, had worked from home or actually, uh, stayed at home with my sister when she was growing up. Right. But then when my sister grew up, uh, she got a job and at Wang Laboratories, which was a huge company here. Um, like, real one of those companies that back in the day was like wow you work for wang and when i was born she was working at this company a high level position and she really felt like she did she wanted she didn't want to shortchange me 
and, and give me a different experience than my sister has. So my mom quit this really good job and decided to start her own consultancy um, out of the house. And she worked out of the house to helping people um, get jobs. Basically, she was a career consultant. And so at a really early age, I was I saw my mom and, and my dad. He was a consultant, too, for the FAA. And I saw them working out of the house a lot. So there, I think there was a lot of nature or nurture there a little bit without me knowing it that I wanted to do something like that and be a consultant as opposed to work in a huge corporation. Um, and so when Staples, when my little, I loved the startup with, with what we did. And then when, ugh, when I got into Staples, I just really didn't feel like I belonged. And, you know, they ended up firing me, which was a great thing ultimately. And I was like, all right, well, I don't know what to do. Had that crisis figuring out. And I looked at Basho as an opportunity because I always felt like I wanted to do my own thing, but I was too chicken shit to do it my own. Right? I'm. I would say I'm not a like a full blown risk taker. Like I'm not the guy that you know uh, dump everything, sleep on mom's couch, eat ramen noodles, make zero money, but you know start a company. That that's not me. I'm more of a calculated risk taker. Right? Where a few pieces have to be in place in order for me to make that jump, but. Again, with that opportunistic lens. So when I joined Basho, my plan was to actually use them to, to learn what it was like to be a coach and a consultant and then potentially, you know, depending on how that panned out, go off on my own. Because I had had some content that I had developed in my first company that was really good, that worked and reps. But I always undervalued what I did because I'm like, oh, shit, I don't know. I just created it because it, I don't know, it works and I needed it. But when I joined Basho, Jeff Hoffman, who is my mentor, one of my mentors now, he had said he created Basho with the content and he just leveled up with what he was charging, day rates, all that other stuff. So I kind of fit right into that. I ran with that for a while. And then again, just being fortunate, you know, one day a new CEO, Jeff, um, uh, brought in a new CEO money to go all in on software and him and this new guy really butt heads. So Jeff left and this new CEO was a software guy. Like he could care less about the training and also 2007. And so all the perfect storm hit and he literally fired all of us. Like there was 35 of us at Basho. Um, he fired 30 of us on the spot one day and, and went all in on the software and literally left the training on the side of the road to die and so, you know, again, being the opportunist, I walked into his office and was like, hey, that sucks. But just out of curiosity, what are you going to do with the training? And he didn't have a good answer. So I was like, oh, shit, can I have it? And he was like, yeah, take it. So I created Kensei Partners and I was still not um, confident enough to go off 100% on my own, even though I probably should have. Um, so I, there was two other, I remember there was five reps and five trainers at the time at Basho. And I'd said to them all, I did the whole Jerry Maguire, like, guys, who's coming with me? Like, this guy just left a, you know, what used to be a $3 million company on the side of the road to die. Like, this is a huge opportunity here for us. And everybody else looked at it as pure risk because now we were 100% commission reps. We, you know, there was no health care or whatever. But I looked at it and I said, wait a minute, this guy just walked away from, you know, first of all, product that everybody loves, the training everybody loved. Um, the, there was a client list there that was off the charts. I mean, Semantic, Gartner, Forrester, like names that any small business would die to have. And then a revenue stream because he had signed up all these clients and the way Basho used to work was they would charge 50% deposit and 50% receivables. And so there were like 100, 200, $300,000 contracts out there that had paid a 50% deposit and he had just fired all the trainers and he had just fired all. And, and, and I knew he wasn't going to give the clients their money back. So I went to him and I said, Hey, look, what if I start a company 
with a couple of these other trainers. We'll go deliver the training for you. You keep the deposits. I'll keep the receivables. And then we'll pay a residual moving forward. And he was like, okay, do it. And so we started Kensei Partners. And then long story short, we ended up letting one of those guys go. It was me and my business partner. And then we ran that for about four years. And, and then I said, all right, now I'm going off on my own because we just had two different views of, of the scale and future and that type of thing. So I ended up letting him have Kensei Partners. Um, I took my uh, clients and my revenue and, and everything with me and then went off on my own. And, and now I've been doing it for five years. So it was a long, long answer to your question, but it was a gradual um, move to the consulting. And it was very fortunate along the way that I was opportunistic to kind of look at the points of saying, okay, cool. Um, it wasn't a, all right, I'm going to be a consultant and starts from scratch type of thing. So as you got it, and then one, that's a great story. And it's, it's one of those things of opportunities, right? Um, I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but, you know, whatever. I think it was Ben Franklin, you know, opportunities often overlook is it resemble, you know, covered in overalls and resembles hard work, whatever that is. Um, but, you know, that's the whole thing. So that's really cool that you uh, kind of took the, the bull by the horns there. Um, so when you got into consulting and you got into really coaching reps, what was the what was the big thing for you like early on? Was it was it a kind of like a oh what did I get myself into type thing, or were, did you relish the opportunity to really help some of these? Because you know there's there's a lot of sales professionals that um, that need work and need help. Did you did you feel that was a big component like that kind of uh, I don't know that optimistic look on it? Yeah, no, I, I kind of took to a fish like uh, I took to it like a fish in water. Um, I it was funny because when I got the opportunity to work for Basho, I still didn't know if I wanted to do it. And again, my mom being a career consultant, uh, career counselor, um, I called her up. You know, I've had a Myers Briggs, you know, since I was I don't know twelve or something like that, and disc profile and all that stuff. And uh, so I called her for some advice, and I said, "Hey, ma." You know, I got this interesting opportunity I never really thought of before, but it's to be a, a sales trainer and consultant for this company. And she just started laughing. And I was like, what's so funny? And she's like, you know, John Michael, she, you know, she's the only one who calls me John Michael. But she goes, you know, I never wanted to um, tell you what to do in your career. But if there was anybody I felt was going to be an excellent trainer or teacher, it was you. And I was like, what? Really? She's like, yeah, she's like, ever since you were a kid, I felt like, you you know, you had a great way of just trend of being able to translate information to people to help them understand it. And I was like, really? And then it then for Basho for the interview, I actually had to um, I had to train. So they, they said I got really almost no guidance. They were like, all right, you know, next, you know, interview one, you great, you did a good job. Next one, you have to come in and you have to pick something to train us on. So I was like, well, shit, okay, well, I don't, I don't know. What, what do you want me to train? No direction at all. So I, I literally went to Barnes and Noble and I picked up training for dummies and I read it and it was, and the first page, it was like, here are the 10 characteristics of what you need to know in order to be a trainer, right? Like it, whether you're, whether or not you're cut out to be a trainer, right? And I, when I tell you every single one of them mash up almost exactly with what I like to do. I was like, holy shit, like apparently I'm supposed to be a trainer. Um, and so then um, it really, and again, going back to believing what you sell, like this Basho stuff worked for me. It was one of the only trainings that I had gone to where I had seen immediate results using the stuff that I, that, that I was being taught. And I just believe because sales is such a profession that 
it's a it's it's the it's the secondary it's it's a default profession right i mean very few people go to sales being like you know, go to school saying i want to be in sales you know the, i'd say probably are about four or five years ago there was about 20 majors in sales now there's 70 so it's starting to gain traction but it's still the least educated profession in the world but and my belief is that when sales is done right it's the greatest profession in the world when done wrong it's the worst and so for me when you, i think it's just incumbent upon us as sales reps when you come across something that works, you should share it. And that's really what my whole mentality was, is look, I wanna share this content with you because it's working for me and I'm still selling. Like I still don't consider myself a trainer. I consider myself a sales rep who happens to train, right? Cause I sell every day. I, I negotiate, I do my, my own prospecting, I do all my own clothes, I, I sell and train you know, myself. And so, you know, and so I'm constantly trying new stuff to say, well, that doesn't work anymore. All right, let's try this. And then when I find something that works, I love sharing it with people because I love watching that, you know, that rep who's been struggling, getting their ass kicked, all of a sudden the light bulb goes off and they do one thing and all of a sudden either they get that response or they get that. So that's really what gets me fired up is, you know, when I can when the same thing happens to somebody else that happened to me where, you know, I'll be walking through Dreamforce or something like that or in an event, some kid will come up to me and say, hey, John, you know, I know you probably don't remember me, but you trained me about three years ago. And I just want to let you know that that class really changed my entire perspective on sales. Uh, I'm now at a manager level or whatever it is. And I really attribute it to what I learned and what you shared with me. Like, that's what keeps me moving, right? That's what, uh, you know, makes me wake up in the morning every day and, and do the 90, 100 days of travel, uh, you know, actually 120 days of travel and travel all over the world and do this every day. So, so that's a, that's actually a good transition there. What do you find is like the biggest difference if you had a pinpoint and maybe it's one thing, maybe it's a couple between the top performer, you know, the top uh, sales professional that you see in various organizations or the middle to, to lower rung um, that maybe hasn't got it yet, or maybe they're not cut out for sales, but they haven't figured it out yet. What do you find is the biggest difference? I mean, the biggest one is, is work ethic. I mean, I always tell people, cause I get asked this a lot, like John, what's the secret to success? You know, you've been pretty successful in your career and blah, blah, blah. And I tell them, I'm look, I'm, I'm not the smartest kid out there. You know, I'm not, you know, any of that stuff, but I'll work, I'll, I'll outwork you. Um, there's just, there's no question. And so to me, the best sales reps are the ones who are working their ass off. I don't believe that you have to be a natural born sales rep to be successful in sales. I, I personally think we're all natural born salespeople. I mean, ultimately, if you go for an interview for a job, you're selling yourself. If you're selling an idea internally, you're selling, right? So whether you label yourself in sales or not, everybody sells. <clears throat> um, some have more confidence than others. Um, some are more inclined to be in sales than others. But, you know, to me, the ones who are the most successful are the ones who, first of all, realize that they can always learn something new. So they're always, you know, looking for that edge, that new, so they consume content all the time, right? They're reading, they're researching, they're, they're listening to podcasts, blogs, whatever it is. Um, and they're applying it, they're trying new things. But really, it, you know, it's, it's the, the, the best answer that I have is work ethic because right now, I mean, from when I was really early on in sales, like, I, I don't know why this is what I, I, I actually ask my parents this all the time. Like, how did you instill the work ethic that you did in me? So forget about confidence. I think you can build confidence by being good at what you do and those type of things. But work ethic is definitely something that is a, a nature thing. In my opinion, um, some people definitely have it and it's been nurtured, but I think there's just innate about people um 
And I just always worked. I didn't work was always part of my life. And that's why when people say work-life balance, I actually think that's kind of a sad way to look at things, right? Oh, I'm trying to work like balance. I think that's total bullshit because by saying work-life balance, you're saying that you work and then you live. Um, and you know, you work at least a third of your life, you sleep a third of your life. So what you're telling me with talking about this work-life balance crap is that you're only living a third of your life. Uh, that's pretty sad to me. So for me, work has always been integrated into my life. And so I, that's why I don't, I don't really think about it when I work all day, grab my daughter, you know, and then, you know, hang up my daughter and my wife from six to eight, nine o'clock at night, my daughter goes to bed, my wife and I laptops go open and we work until, you know, 12 o'clock in the morning. And it's not sitting there going, Oh God, I got to work until one o'clock in the morning. It's like, cause I'm getting shit done. And this is what drives me. Right. Um, it pains me these days. I, I usually train eight thirty to four thirty, um, and then you know I, I almost rare, I almost never get to hang out. Like I'm usually ne- at the airport to the next thing, right? Whatever. Um, but I'll you know four thirty stops. I'll usually kind of hang around with whoever's there, and then check emails from four thirty or four forty five to about five thirty, and then I get in the car and I head to the airport again to the next next session. Um, when I leave the offices these days at four thirty, five o'clock, five thirty, they're ghost towns. Like there's literally no reps, and I'm just sitting there, just like, are you out of your mind right now? Like, do you want to? Do you really want to be successful? Then there's a certain point of just putting in the work, and and a lot of that other stuff tends to tends to fall in line because if you're passionate about what you do and you work your ass off, you seek out information, you look to learn, you 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 have that lens of figuring things out and and trying to get better, right? That's what I see that separates the the good from the great. You know, the good ones are probably really good reps that don't push themselves all that much, you know, have that innate ability to have a conversation with people and whatever and can take rejection and no worries, whatever. But the great ones are the ones who are pushing themselves. They're the ones always asking questions. You know, they're always looking for feedback. Um, You know, they're, they're I can always tell in a training the ones who are the successful ones because they're the ones asking questions. Um, because a lot of times managers will come in. So which ones are you in my room? You know, and it's an unfair question to ask me being, you know, only seeing somebody for six, seven hours during the day to evaluate them. But, you know, I, I, I go, I like the challenge of saying, okay, which are my best reps? And I'll immediately be like that one, that one, that one, and that one. And be like, they'll be like, shit, you're right on most of those. Right. Um, and it's purely based on their interaction, the, the quality of their questions and, and their genuine um interest in learning something uh those are the ones that excel hmm. so this is an interesting question but i'm I'm curious your your gut reaction is what's the what's the bad advice you hear on the sales floor like you're like why, why, how is that even something going on like how are how are they using that as a tactic or whatever right what, what's bad advice you hear that people need to get rid of or that thought process needs to get rid of in sales um the old school sales, the Glen Gary, Glen Ross, the Wolf of Wall Street, the boiler room shit, like dialing for dollars, uh, you know, hundred. I cringe when I come into organizations and I hear anything more than 50 dials a day. Like I, I literally cringe because there's just no way you can you're doing anything other than regurgitating a piece of shit pitch and and just praying that you hit somebody at the right time. Right. There's no quality involved in that. There's no real skill involved in making a hundred dials a day. There's just not. Um, and, and anything that is a technique that is like a sneaky thing to close somebody or a douchey question to ask them, 
like like I'll give you an example. My gut reaction is anything about like, and I hate to say this because I have consumed all of his content, but everything I see online about him is just ew, and it's all the what I think is sales done the wrong way is Grant Cardone, like you know stacks of cash and you know cocaine and fucking flying around in Lear jets like that's the perception of sales and that's why anytime somebody says hey what do you do and you tell them i'm in sales that's why they roll their eyes because they get those cold calls from shitty sales reps trying to stuff something down their throat and then you know use this you know closing technique to back you into a corner and force you to do something that you don't want to do right i mean that's that's not sales that's being a douche um you know and 100 dials a day is what I mean, I, okay, if you're selling something that's like a one-call close and is, I don't know, a few hundred bucks or something like that, maybe. But if you're in B2B sales, you know, and you're just dialing for dollars and, you know, again, just not caring what you do and reading a script and cranking out template emails, like, what's the fucking point? Yeah, that's, <laughs> I don't disagree with anything you just said there. So you're, you're, I think you're right on point. Um What's the, uh, I'm actually curious about this. You, you have your tagline, make it happen. What's the genesis of that? Why did that come about or when did that come about? Yeah, that was, um, so when I was at Thrive, um, you know, a huge part of my lead gen, if you will, I did a, I'd made 400 dials a week. So I was in that range, um, you know, around 50 to, you know, 75, 80 dials a, a day. So I was back in that, um, which yeah, I don't recommend anymore. Uh, so I did that, but I also went to like networking groups. That uh, was probably, probably part of three or four networking groups every single week that I would get up at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning and go to. And then events. Events were a huge part for me. And I recommend anybody listen to this podcast. If there's a way you want to improve your skills, especially if you want to go from inside to outside sales, um, go to networking events. is the perfect place to practice, right? Um, but I was really there to, to meet as many people as I could possibly meet. And what happened one year, uh, about two or three years into it, when I really started catching that groove of, of, you know, making it happen, I, the summer hit, right? And usually during the summer, the, the events die off because the general perception is, oh, well, nobody's around in the summer. So why have an event, right? That was, this was 20 years ago, right? And so I was like, well, and that's what I heard from everybody. Like, why are, and I, when I was asked like, hey, what events in the summer? And oh, there's no events in the summer. Nobody goes to them. There's nobody around. I'm like, I'm around, you know, so screw this. Instead of like what I used to do is the Boston Business Journal used to have their calendar of all the events. I would just highlight the ones that I'd want to go to and I'd go to those. But I always kind of relied on these other what I thought were like reputable businesses to run these events. And so I was like, well, you know what? Screw this. If nobody's having events and I'm going to have one, I'm just going to make. And that's where it came from. I'm just going to make this shit happen. And so I called, I went down to Boston. There was a Tia's on the waterfront here. It's one of the only bars that's literally, or at the time was one of the only bars that was literally right on the water. Um, had a really nice outdoor patio. And I just convinced the, the, um, the owner to give me the patio and to be pay on receivables. So I didn't have to pay up front because I didn't own the money to. Um, and uh, I charged like 10 bucks at the door and I, I promoted it to everybody I knew, friends, you know, everybody, uh, business colleagues, everybody. And I said, hey, we're having happy hour. It's five o'clock, Boston, downtown, drinks, you know, whatever, 10 bucks to get in. It'll be the best event. And I kind of oversold it. You know, best event you've ever been to. Nobody has anything. Somewhere we're going to make it happen. Right. And when I tell you like, holy shit, the response, 
I had about 250 people show up. The line was around the corner and people still to this day tell me it was one of the best events they've ever been to from a networking standpoint. And so that's really where my head just was like, you know what, like just stop asking for permission and just make shit happen. And, and that uh, kind of snowballed. And I, I don't know, I started talking about it more and more when I was doing training. A lot of my responses were, were I don't know, make it happen. Like, like when somebody would ask me, well, how do you do this? I'm, I don't know, do it. Just try it, see what happens. And the make it happen, things started catching on. People were like, oh, do you have any gear around that or whatever? And so that's where I started the store and the, you know, the tagline and all that stuff. And now all proceeds from that store go to charity and everything else. But no, it's, it's been a pretty fun uh, thing to get people off their ass and get done doing shit. Is there a, besides that, I guess, is there a quote that you live by or, a, you know, maybe it's a, a motto or words that you try to, you know, instill in yourself or kind of say, you know, self-talk? Um, that you've gone throughout your life or maybe it's, you know, in the, in the past little bit? Uh, you know, there's a couple of them, you know, Abraham Lincoln, I think, you know, I don't know, the internet's always, who knows, we have these quotes, but I think it's Abraham Lincoln who said, uh, good things come to those who wait, but only what's left from those who hustle. So I like that one. Um, I go through every day um, with my daughter uh, before she goes to school, we go over this one that we came up with, which was, you know, when we were going through, when, a couple of years ago in the election and things were kind of ugly and things are now too, um, as far as the shit that's going on right now, it was, it was actually really affecting me. And it was also really affecting my daughter because it was affecting my wife and I and, and how frustrated we are with what was going on in, in our country specifically. And I could tell it was impacting her. And so I said, you know what, we gotta, we gotta stop this, stop watching news, stop, you know, talking about this at dinner and those type of things. And I said to my daughter, look, we need to just focus on what we can control. And we came up with the acronym EAT, which is effort, attitude, and how you treat people. And so every morning uh, before we go to, before my daughter goes to school, I'm like, all right, Charlotte, you know, what can we control today? She's like, eat, daddy, effort, attitude, and how we treat people. And so that's really what I, I kind of live by, which is focus on what you can control and the other sh stuff, who gives a shit? You know, like you can't control it. So why worry about it? You know, you can't really control the customer's budget. You can't really control, you know, all these things. You can do everything you can to put yourself in the best position to get that deal closed. But at the end of the day, some shit just happens and you have to be okay with that type of stuff. Um, I also have, uh, you know, I have my 12 personal guidelines to success that I came up with a long time ago. I, you know, somebody wrote an ebook on them, but, you know, a lot of that is how I guide my life is too, which is, you know, find your passion or find something else to do. Uh, what goes around comes around, you know, those type of things. And um, the 12th one, which is actually, I, I got, I, it used to be always have a plan B, which I disagree with now because I believe your plan B actually distracts from your plan A. Um, but I changed it after I got fired from Staples to say, um, be o always be okay with worst case scenario. So any decision that you make, right, whether it's uh, say it's very tactical here, like you, you're, you're dealing with a, a client where you're below the power line and, you know, it's coming to the end of the month and you haven't got to power yet and you know you got to get to power to get this deal closed. Well, going over somebody's head without pissing them off, like that's a that's a tough decision to make and it's rarely successful, right? But if you're going to go over somebody's head, just be okay with the fact that you will you might piss them off and you might lose that deal. If you're okay with that, then go over their head and talk to their boss and see what happens, right? Um, and that be okay with worst case scenario has, has been great for me because now I look at situations when I make a decision, and I'm like, okay, what's the absolute worst thing that could happen here? If I'm cool with that, then yep, I'm in. Let's do it.
So last last thought for you on this is um, how do you continue to learn? Or I guess in a two-parter, where would you direct, especially sales professionals, but it could be a small business owner that also has to do sales or what have you, um, to direct them to learn or mm -hmm. get more insight or knowledge um, on sales as a whole or you know, how to work with uh, you know, potential partners, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's all over the place, right? Because everybody learns differently. So, you know, some people are more auditory, some people are more visual, some people are a little bit more kinesthetic. So, you know, I think it depending on what you like, and it, it's worth actually going through. So there's a study out there called Neuro Linguistic Programming, um, NLP for short. And there's actually a really good sales book on this called Selling with NLP, The Unfair Advantage. Um, and it's actually, it's worth going through the exercise to figure out what type of learner you are. Um, so that you can get, you know, a lot of people know, but it's good to kind of have some data behind it to say, no, you actually learn better this way. So based on that, then you can start to seek out the channels that are most appropriate for you on, on, from a learning standpoint. Like for instance, I'm not a reader. Like I, I, I can't stand books. Like I probably have read five books in my life. Um, like cover to cover. Right. Um, but I, but I love blogs and I love snippets. Right. So I'll, I'll read a one page blog all day. Um, I like podcasts, right? So, you know, those are what I listen to. So you go top 25 podcasts and sales and I don't know, download some of those. Um, I use Feedly. So F-E-E-D-L-Y, Feedly, it's an RSS aggregator. So, um, you know, what you can do with Feedly is you can go in and say there's like five or six different sales blogs you like reading. Well, usually you have to go five or six different sales websites um, or get five or six different emails to hit you. With Feedly, what you can do is you can create a folder in Feedly called sales blogs and you know, highlight your top five or six favorite sales blogs in there. And then that can be, that's like, for instance, that's my morning paper. So instead of reading the actual morning paper or checking my fantasy leagues, getting all pissed off about that type of stuff, um, what I ended up doing is I, I set up Feedly and I just kind of scan through the headlines of all these different blogs. And if I pick up a headline that I like, then I read I go ahead and I read that. Um, um, you know, so I, I think those are some things, podcasts that obviously are blowing up right now. Um, so a lot of people are consuming content that way. Uh, and then just, you know, I don't know. Um, constantly just be asking questions. I, I'm more of an exper uh, experiential learner. Like I need to experience whatever it is so I can internalize it and really learn it as opposed to, you know, doing some bullshit role play or something like that. That's actually why I got attracted to this training in the first place because it was all, instead of role play, it was very live application based. So it was like, hey, you know, let's send an email to your top account and this is how to do it. Now send the email, right? So for me, the more I get to do things, uh, the, the more I learn. So, you know, I, I think those are some resources, but I think it'd, it'd be worth, uh, if people don't know what their learning style is, um, it'd be worth figuring out what your learning style is and then looking for content based on those mediums. John, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. What, what, where can people find you uh, online? Where, they, where can they reach out or learn more about you? Yeah, I mean, I, th I appreciate that, Brian. Um, I, I think the, the easiest and best place is just to go to the website. If you go to jbarrows.com, so J-B-A-R-R-O-W-S.com, you'll find pretty much everything there, all my social feeds. Um, yeah, we have a resource library there where I give away probably 80 to 90% of what I do when I train. Um, also my blog and then yeah the social channels i mean snapchat it's funny you know i got into snapchat a few years back because gary v was talking about it and you know as a 42 year old man i'm like ah, you know i don't know what the hell i'm doing on snapchat but it's actually one of my favorite ways to engage with um the reps that i work with because it's a it's one-on-one -on -one coaching 
Um, a lot of times reps will ask questions on email and, you know, I probably get 20 or 30 questions a day that I try to respond to as quickly as I can, but I'm not great at typing. So it takes me a little while. Um, where Snapchat, I could be rolling through the airport and some kid just snaps me a question. Hey, John, I'm in this situation. This is the challenge that I have right now. Like any suggestions and I could just record, you know, snap them back and answer real quick. And so I'm a big fan of Snapchat, uh, Instagram, um, you know, post a bunch of stuff on there. Uh, we also have a Facebook group. Where if you go to Facebook slash Jay Barrows, there's our group is actually called Make It Happen. And that's where uh, we do the Make It Happen podcast every Monday, 1230. It's actually a live podcast where people can ask questions. And then we also do a Friday happy hour. So from four to five o'clock East Coast time, Morgan and I, my, my new employee and colleague, um, we light up Facebook live in the group only and go through all the questions that people have had throughout the week. And answer them and then have some dialogue with whoever wants to jump on board with us. So that's another fun way to, to engage. Well, John, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and, and get a lot of your great insight here and uh, look forward to connect with you here uh, very soon. And for everyone um, listening, um, I'll put all the different uh, quotes and the different links, um, especially to your 12 principles and the like in the show notes. You guys can check those out and I appreciate everyone listening as well. Thanks again to everyone for listening on this episode. And remember, if you want to check me out online, brianondraco.com is my website, B-R-I-A-N-O-N-D-R-A-K-O, as well as at brianondraco on Instagram and Twitter. I certainly appreciate any feedback and comments um, that you have and look forward to interacting with you guys further. Um, remember, you can also leave a review on iTunes. That would be very appreciative. Um, love to know how I'm doing and, uh, and hear your feedback there or if whatever podcasting platform you guys are utilizing. Hope you guys have a great day, a phenomenal week, and look forward to catching you next time. Take care. Just get started.